This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 494, for February 10th, 2016. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, everyone. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Well, I'm about as good as you are. That's uh, <laughs> We're both sick. Uh, a plague on both our houses. This is, you cannot get a virus from listening to a podcast so far as we know. So you're safe, folks. Uh, yes, this if you is could, the, I would be patient zero for that virus. It's the, doldr- it's the doldrums of the news reporting period and the doldrums of cold experiencing period. Yes, I blame February. my child. Yes, well, I always blame your children. It's very easy. And they can't. The best they thing can, about having kids. They can't refute you. Uh, so this week we got a we got a number of small news items and one big thing we're going to talk about error fifty three the worst error in the world uh, later in the episode if you haven't heard about error fifty three that's that thing that bricks your iPhone if you get it uh, repaired by a third party sort of not exactly but we'll talk about that uh, so uh, we're going to start off with some consumer ish advice we don't always do consumer advice we try to advise you about. General things, but this is kind of neat. Google uh, wants to have you tune up your security, but they're putting their uh, bits where their mouth is and will give you two gigabytes of additional Google storage, uh, Google Drive storage, if you go through an account security checkup. Have you done this, Susie? Yeah, I did it just this morning in preparation for this podcast. And it only took a few minutes, and it was very painless, and it was one of those things that you should kind of do anyway. Um, as I was going through the steps, it reminded me of the little security checkup that I do on Facebook every once in a while um, because Facebook changes their settings a lot. And most of the time, like your your settings carry over when they when they move things around, but not always. And, you know, all these different apps and things want you to log in with Facebook and access your Facebook account. And it's kind of nice to audit those every once in a while and revoke things that you no longer want to give permission. So the the Google security checkup is is the same thing. I mean, you can connect a lot of different apps and services to your Google account. So yeah, I went through it. Um, the first step was uh, I verified my backup phone number, email address, and security question. Um, that reminded me that another pro tip that Google doesn't suggest, but um, you could easily do, was um, when sites ask you to provide answers for these security questions, you don't you don't have to really give the answer. You can just put in some gibberish, or you know, have one password like make a make a string for you that means nothing, and then have you know your password manager like one password remember that string for you. Um, that's the crucial part. But um, and yeah, so that way, if someone actually knows you know what your first car was or where you went to high school, they won't be able to provide that answer. But anyway, um, moving on, then you see all the devices you have connected to your Google account and when you last when they last connected. Um, th- those are the devices using your main password. So you can't um, revoke permission to those device by device. But if you say like, oh, something looks weird there, I don't recognize this device, it just has you change your whole account password. Um, if everything's good there, you get to see all the applications you've let access your Google account along with what they can access if they're looking at your contacts, your calendars, your email, whatever. Um, so you can revoke those app by app. Um, so I ditched LinkedIn from there. LinkedIn had full access to my Gmail account. And I'm like, hmm, maybe that's why everyone gets an email every time I, I, uh, I, I look at LinkedIn. Oops. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going so. to write a future uh, private eye column about that. Someone asked about what apps are appropriate to have LinkedIn, and I said, not LinkedIn, not literally LinkedIn. 
<laughs> Although LinkedIn also but uh, connected to various accounts. And I'm going to write a rundown of like you should go through uh, everything because so many things authenticate now. Google authenticates uh, Twitter, Twitter, yeah, Facebook, Facebook. Uh, and LinkedIn. I think you can use on some systems to authenticate you to them. So you wind up with all these apps approved. And the other day, someone I know who is actually quite conservative about what they allow, their account starts spewing weight loss ads. And I'm like, oh, you got hacked somehow. And it apparently was through some old app connection. I don't think they lost, got their passwords swiped or broken. It was actually through an app. And you know, often that's the thing is an app goes into disrepair, a company abandons it, which is totally fine. The domain name goes out of date or someone buys it and then it gets in different people's hands. So yeah, unless it's, it's an totally app okay to just date. clear all those out and just add yeah, them back kind of as them. you need them. Yeah, yeah you don't, that's the whole point of the thing is just, you, don't, you don't lose anything by doing it. So I'll, I'll write a more comprehensive piece about that to let people know where to look for those settings and different kinds of services now. Good call. Then they show you all the application-specific passwords you've yeah. created if you're using two-factor. So you can go through and clear out any of those. It shows you the last time they were used. So I had some that hadn't been used since 2013. So I'm just going to go ahead and delete all those. Yeah, those are a um, huge security hole. I've written about that before because uh, they can be used. They, they sort of override any protection because they let you in only for specific services, though. Application-specific passwords can't log into your account. They can only get access to like sync data, like calendars and so mm -hmm. forth. But that's still a lot. I mean, you can get to um, email calendars, contacts, and some other stuff. You just can't log in and make changes. Uh, so if someone, you know, usually passwords are entered in the software in a one-way direction. So you get an application-specific password. You don't you don't keep a record of it. Typically, you copy it, you paste it into say you know Fantastical or Calendar for uh, OS ten or iOS, and it makes the connection. And then it's like, okay, that password's stored. It's usually stored securely forever and you don't know it and that's fine but other software may store it less securely or you might have made a note of it or whatever and then that could be used to extract your personal details as opposed to you know like i say modify your account yeah so and i feel like those are i don't see those as much anymore like i used to use a yeah, ton yeah, of application specific passwords for my google account um it actually showed me that i've had two factor on in my google account since 2012 you are ahead of the curve. Kind of surprising. I know. Good for me. So, um, but I feel like now most sites and services are just supporting the Google, um, you know, the Google two-factor. Like, it, it, I get the text message with the code. I think Google's after being aggressive because I remember some companies. I don't know yeah. if it was wasn't fantastic. I think it was um, the folks at BusyMac who make BusyCal and BusyContacts. I think they hit a point at which something they were doing. Well, was it what they were doing or? They were like, you know, it's better for us at this point to switch to Google Authentication, so you'll have to go through this new process. Your old passwords, you know, you could still use the old password thing for this period of time. Uh, now, I don't know if everybody had to do that, but I think Google is out there aggressively. I'm sure if you're a, if you're a product or service that has, you know, 100,000 people using uh, app-specific passwords, they may reach out to you and say, look, just do the integration. We'll help you with it. You only have to do it one time. It works great. Here's our API. Um, I would expect that because I'm seeing exactly what you are. It's more convenient for me to not have to do an app-specific password, but I also think it's something Google wants to push, and it's another, you know, then you can say as a software product, hey, you don't even have to enter a password. We use Google's system, Apple's system, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Twitter or whatever. Uh, so that seems like a, a an advertising point as well. Yeah, it just takes some of the friction out of using two-factor. Um, you know, application-specific passwords were kind of your, you know, penance for being a smart security person before. Because, yeah, you had to go to a separate website. It was several clicks to, you know, create one and then copy it and then go back to wherever and paste it. And 
it was a big pain in the butt. So those are going away. And I took this opportunity to, to, you know, clear most of those out. And then that's it. They show you a peek at your two-factor settings, which is, you know, how you want to verify your account, how many unused backup codes you have. There's a link to go to the other pay, another page and change those. But if you're, you know, using two-factor, you probably use it a lot and you kind of already have it how you like it. So they just sort of show you and have you verify that that's all set up properly. And then that's it. So the whole thing took like, you know, two, three minutes at the most. And then you get two gigabytes more Google Drive space forever, that, as far as good. I can tell. So that, that seems like very awesome. little at one level and a lot at another. You know, if you're just doing Google Docs and Google Spreadsheets, that's like, you know, every file you're going to make for the next hundred years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I want, I want to point out there's a funny thing. Uh, you mentioned one password before. And one password is a great way to store not just passwords, but your um those reminder questions because you can save. This is something I'm not sure everybody knows. The tip for most password managers have this. When you're on a page where you enter your password reminders, it may or may not offer to capture those for you because, you know, one password, last pass and so forth, uh, dash slain, they will all say, hey, we just saw you entered a password-like thing. Do you want us to save it? When you're on that page, you can enter your security questions and answers. You can go, now I'll use one password so I know how to do this. You bring up the one password dialogue in the browser, you click the gear icon and you do save new login. And then you type, you know, Google Mail uh, security questions and you save it. And having done that, then you have all your questions stored from that page. It just captures all the form data. So that's another way that you don't have to create an entry someplace or whatever. And, uh, and it's available. Little tip. Yeah, that's a good tip. I've I I've been slacking on that. Like I usually just use the actual information, but I know I'm not supposed to. So. I know because yeah, if you do, I think your suggestion is great. A lot of security experts say never give out your real information. But then it's like, all right, well, how many different pieces of information am I going to track? But if you use something like One Password, now One Password doesn't offer this. I don't think any of the major uh, password managers offer it. But wouldn't it be amazing if it was put in fake information so it knew it's like it's asking about your birthday we're just gonna say a random number here you know april 5th uh what about you know your favorite pet your favorite pet was named mussolini hitchcock you know <laughs> and just every site it did it but it stored it so you had it i mean that you're still protected could you use if you had a really long string that was just gibberish could you just store that as like generic security thing and then Very use likely. that everywhere? Well, yeah, yeah, you could, although some of them require different answers. I, I wanted to point out a new feature, one password that's been cracking me up too, is they added, uh, you know, I've been talking about for years since, um, and this isn't my idea, obviously, this is something I got through people who do research in this field, that uh, we've talked about how multiple word phrases are actually more secure than short, high entropy phrases. So, if you have, you know, seven, three, exclamation point, lowercase a, capital N, Z, M, you know, dash, that might actually be less secure than hockey stick, frog, uh, banana peel, because oh, yeah. they, crackers, can't, it takes so many words that any arbitrary combination of three or four words could take vastly longer to sort through. Um, it's just not part of, you know, some algorithms now do this, but they're looking for common words and phrases. I love you, or, um, this is my password, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> they don't look for arbitrary ones. So in some cases it might be, you know, quintillions or, you know, it might take a, a thousand years before it would hit, uh, even the fastest computer today it could hit, um, some particular combination of words through brute force. So, and so it's easier to remember too. You can remember those passwords. So one password has finally added this great uh, option when you're generating passwords. You can use the typical thing, which is characters, or you can use words. And the great thing is, it's like uh, word salad poetry. 
Yeah, so I was just if, saying we should do a thing where we like make poems with it. Oh, you, if you set the number up high, like three is default. So I just got women, barrel, bedlam, thunder, twit, okra, unison, temporal. Wow. Uh, I just, I didn't, uh, Baruch, you could name bands and albums and stuff yeah. that way. Baruch gone eyed verbose, vivacity unisex acerbic sure. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's beautiful. So it is. Uh, but you know, you don't need to use seven words. You can set it to three or four. I think four winds up getting, there's this issue about like uh, uh, each word you add adds this enormous amount of entropy. It seems like it's like, well, it's just one more word. They could just do one more word. It's like, no, a word is a bunch of characters. Every additional character you add, even if it's part of a dictionary word, adds entropy as long as it's not a common phrase. So they uh, they ex- they extract most of the common words. These are all less common words, and uh, and there you go. It's kind of fun. Well, so that's a good yeah, good tip. Uh, I mean, Dropbox does these things regularly, but they don't do the security review, as far as I know. But you know, if you upload photos, if you refer people, I think you can wind up getting as much as eighteen gigabytes of permanent free storage on Dropbox. Yeah, uh, mine if, is huge. If you do everything, yeah. I, and but I, I want to pay because it's at ten bucks a month now. I think for a terabyte, I forgot what they they up the limits, and now I just use it. They just they hit the threshold where it's not worth me managing my storage. I, I still just, pay for it, but if I didn't pay for it, my free storage is like a lot. It's something like 30 gigabytes or something. Cause I, I, <laughs> I used my referral link like everywhere. Yeah. And now it's hard to get action on those because everybody has Dropbox, but back in the day. And then every time we wrote about Dropbox, we'd take turns putting different people's referrals. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. I like the security checkup. I think most sites do it. It requires effort and time and programming customer service support when people have problems. Uh, but you know, I, uh, months ago I wrote about Yahoo trying this uh, no password option where every time you logged in, you'd use an app or it would text you a code. So it's like a second factor, but there's no first factor, but it means you always have to have a device. So they're in their formulation. And I kind of agree with this for most people, their password, if they only have a password is going to be weaker than a second factor ish thing. So I just went to log into Flickr the other day and I was like, oh yeah. And it's like, and it shows me, I type in the user account. It's like, Hey, you log in by going to Yahoo mail on your phone, which I had installed. I go there, tap the icon and then enter the you know brief code there. And I thought, this is such a nice, you know, I don't use Yahoo all the time, but it is such a nice thing that takes people out of that, making a strong password issue or remembering it or losing it or being subject to remote attack. You have to have physical access to their equipment uh, or their phone number in order to seize their account. And I think it dramatically reduces the risk profile and, and it seems so counterintuitive. So I hope other sites will think about that as well, that the password is not as secure as the phone. And, and you know, in terms of wholesale attacks being attacked from anywhere in the world versus someone has to get access to your phone and be able to unlock it. It's all the yeah, be sure to lock your phones. <laughs> My wife finally did. Now, she doesn't have a, um, she does not have a fingerprint, you know, Touch ID phone. We'll talk about Touch ID in just a little bit. Um, so she, for her, it's more of a hassle, but she finally started locking her phone because she realized it's just, you know, it's it's too risky. And if Apple comes out with the putative uh, 5SE, or whatever they're going to call it, the uh, SE-X, the SE-30, what's it going to be? No. <laughs> uh, blast from the past. Um, if they come out with that phone, that's ostensibly going to have a Touch ID, and then Apple's entire lineup of uh, phones that would be sold new would have Touch ID, and uh, then the two flagship or three flagship um, iPads. I think does Apple still sell one or two iPad models that don't have Touch ID? Um, I can't remember. I think they might have one because uh, iPad Pro has it, right? Has to. Yes. And iPad Air. 
3 has yes, it. iPad Pro has it. iPad Air 3, definitely. iPad mm. um, Mini 4 got it. Yeah, so there might or be wait, one. Wait, iPad Mini 3 got it? Yeah, yeah, so there might be one model of iPad that they still sell that's older that doesn't, maybe. I don't think so. I think if you buy the original iPad Air, does that not have it? Yeah, they added that late. But so, they I added mean, that so, to the Air 2, I think. So, so maybe you Apple can buy the almost, original iPad mm-hmm. Air still, but it's like, you know, it's the discount. So it still has, they still have at least one model, the iPhone 5, that's uh, S that sold new, um, that doesn't have it. But that would be neat for everything to have Touch ID. Uh, but the, uh, the 5C doesn't have it. The, the 5C, 5C right. I'm sorry. I still saw the 5 And the 5S does have it, of course, right? So if they get rid of the 5C and maybe replace the 5S with the SE, then we'll see. Yeah. But then it becomes much easier to lock and unlock. And I think that's what deters people. It's like, oh, God, I have to punch my code in again. It's still, I just switched to a six digit code after preaching this for a long time. And I wrote something recently about. Uh, further risks about using four-digit codes. If you're really serious, not like you're worried about people, governments invading you, but more like just from casual security standpoint, four-digit codes are increasingly thought of as breakable with enough brute force. Uh, there's always techniques because they can run through you know, 10,000 codes in a, um, a finite amount of time. Even if uh, So like the FBI came out that they were probably using tools to do this and automate it um, using a bypass where they could hook up machinery to an iPhone to do it. So... I switched to six digits, and I didn't make my code that much more complicated. It's based on my previous one, which I'll reveal on the air. It's, oh, no, no, I shouldn't tell anybody. Um, and uh, Sorry, that would be very insecure. Um, but I'm using six digits now, and I don't have to use it that often, only when my phone unexpectedly randomly reboots, as it has done a few times recently, uh, or when I restart it with a new operating system version. Um, Susie, I want to sidebar for a moment from our usual discussion about Mac things and just mention something about Android. I know it's yes, you've been using a, a Moto X for a little while, right? Yeah, I'm not using it How's as a going? daily phone. I'm using it more for testing and, and kind of messing around with and trying to understand. And, and um, the Marshmallow update was uh, pushed out. It came with uh, 5.1, I think, Android 5.1. And then I you know, fired it up one day, and it's, I don't use it all the time, so I don't know how long it's been offering me. It's like, hey, Marshmallow is ready. I'm like, this has been a big complaint. With Android phones, they're not upgradable. This one was sold with the promise that it would 6.0 would come. And I'm like, hey, I'll do that. Background downloads, I can use the phone, it reboots. Like it was a totally seamless, wonderful experience. Upgrading. I don't know if this was in 5.x, but it's in 6.0. Android does QR code stand- scanning now. It automatically the camera recognizes QR codes, which I um. have wanted as a feature forever. And the, the URLs apparently it doesn't just open the URL; it passes it through Google's uh, malware checking URL uh, system because they compile massive lists of um, of malware URLs. So it won't open a URL that's in its uh, its you know bad database, or either passes it to Chrome inside its browser in Android, or uh, looks at it directly. But I've wanted that forever where QR codes are so convenient in the right circumstances. And now we use QR codes constantly on our phones to, you know, be scanned by other devices. So Android's got it. Come on, Apple. So so you're in the camera app and it recognizes them? You just just got some crosshairs. You can scan QR codes in the uh, wallet app. Yeah, I know, but the, but only it doesn't work with uh, every QR code, does it? Oh, it I don't know. With, I never you can add use so, I know. QR codes. Well, it's funny. No one uses QR codes. So I've talked about this they before. They just tell but you like, to drink your Ovaltine. It, uh, exactly. Oh, very nice. Very good callback. Uh, the QR codes were developed, and 2D codes in general uh, came into popularity in Japan because all the infrastructure uh, agreed on it. So the advertisers, uh, marketers, um, the big companies who are going to put out advertising campaigns, the phone makers, the handset makers, the um, – 
carriers all said, okay, we want to try this out. And they're trying to push the web. But this was, you know, before there was there were any good web browsers. Um, but you could get internet access earlier in Japan on a phone in a decent way than you could in America and, uh, and in Europe. So uh, there made sense. So you would see a QR code and like you wouldn't want to type in on your phone. You know, there weren't touch mm -hmm. keyboards. And it made sense in Japan to do that. And, um, and they were caught on here, I think, because tiny URLs, URL shorteners, which I now disclaim, you know, say are terrible, recent column. <laughs> Don't use them. They're Maybe too... we'll bring back QR codes. <clears throat> yeah. But I like, I mean, I see QR codes. They come up all the time. And I think Android users are why. Because if you're an Android user, you just flash your phone. It goes bloop. Um, it's just a way to bridge that without having to type in a URL or memorize something. You just flash your phone at it and whatever. The other a thing, A lot of I... them are short. I feel like a lot of them that I see are shortcuts to apps in the app store, which makes sense because the app store, it's still, you, oh, yeah. you got to open it and then you got to search for the thing. Like, and then when you search for it, a bunch of other imposter apps are going to oh, come yeah, up and yeah. have like a similar name. And you're going to have to figure out like, which is the one from the developer in the, you know, ad or commercial or whatever that you saw. Um, so yeah, they're, they're good for that because they get you exactly where you need to go in one step, which we need more of just in the world today. <laughs> um, the, I have a cool QR code story. So my friend Robin lives in the Upper Haight, and she's lived there since the 80s. And she has an awesome um, neighbor named Stan. He's fascinating. He gives tours about the Upper Haight and, you know, will tell you all the history. Um, he works at the hardware store. He's just one of those, like, Renaissance guys who knows everything. He knows everybody. He painted a QR code on the side of their building. It's oh. really, really big. Like, if you walk <laughs> awesome. by it, you, all, you, like, you sort of have to be almost across the street from it to realize it's a QR code. QR code because it just looks like some kind of you know abstract art made with a bunch of cubes and then if you but if you are walking right by it you might notice a little sign that says like this is not an advertisement like he has kind of a disclaimer up that this is not you know a commercial advertisement and it's actually a QR code that goes to a page that gives you a bunch of history about the neighborhood. Like oh, he knows that's cool. like where you know, like which house Patty Hearst was held in and he knows all these like cool stories about I mean San Francisco has such a rad history and um, so yeah, that's like my favorite use of a QR code ever. So good well, job, Stan. There have been I'll some take plans. a picture of it and put it in show notes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, there have been plans in the past to uh, use QR codes on like kiosks and signage. So instead of having to put up a giant plaque or maybe be a small plaque and have some information, could even have a URL with a shortcut, but it would have a QR code because you're standing there. You're like, oh, you know, to hear audio, an audio tour of this spot sponsored by the city or um, mm -hmm. to get more detail – just scan this thing and it becomes a casual act that gets you more in touch with where you are. I like the fact that QR codes, because they're often physically represented, you're looking at a thing like I need the bus schedule. Oh, I could either type in that URL or search or I could just go bloop. So I have a QR code scanning app on my phone. I kind of use it. Occasionally I use it as well. Now, continuity and handoff, uh, they uh, prevent me having to use it as much. I used to use it when I wanted to go from my browser on a desktop to my phone and read something. I would actually have a shortcut to Google Charts can make QR codes. So I, had a, a, I have a <laughs> JavaScriptlet where I could press a button. It would make a a QR code of the page I was on. I would scan it with my oh. phone and then I'd read it. And now with I don't need that with uh, handoff because yeah. I have the page up and I just popping on my phone, but it's like a glue for me. Other mm. thing I want to say about Android, which I was surprised by is, uh, you know, you can get all these these secondary keyboards, uh, alternative keyboards for iOS. Uh, now for, since what was iOS eight added that yeah. option. And I use swipe regularly S W Y P E. I'm kind of mm -hmm. addicted to it. I have the text expander one in when I need to do text expansions. Uh, I love having that ability. Uh, I've got, you know, an emoji keyboard for better emojiing. Uh, and actually I think Apple's 
iOS 8 and 9 keyboards are better than they used to be. But Much better. I got to say, the default Android keyboard in on the Moto X, which I think is the default installation, it's so good. It's so good. I'm using a phone the same size as my iPhone 6S, and there's a little bit of haptic feedback. It, the buttons are better pre- pressed. It's better at correcting if I if I slur off to the wrong key. Wait, you keep it on where it buzzes every time you type it, type a letter? Yeah, the Moto X has a very light buzz mode. So when I type, it's just bip, 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 and I feel it, and I know I press the key. Huh. And it's I actually quite like it. I wish it were a mode on the uh, the 3D Touch models. I'm it surprised sounds like not. it would be annoying, but maybe not. It's very light. I'm assuming that. Moto X has degrees of buzzing because it's it's just this tiniest like you feel like you press something a little bit as opposed to like bah, 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 you know the yeah <laughs> when I got the iPhone 6s if I have it uh, overnight I've got it near my bed face down and um if it, and I have do not disturb on until like 7 a.m. but then I'll get notifications from Nuzzle or whatever and the photo go like you hear this it's so yeah. quiet in the room it's like a giant motor you hear the motor firing up to like trigger and go kaboom oh my god yeah it's, I'm always um, erring on turning all that stuff off it's pretty yeah I have like very keyboard few things keyboard clicks is the first thing I turn off on any device that I touch I hate yeah. the keyboard clicks so the the moto haptic feedback just reminds me of keyboard uh, clicks give it a try get your your friend yeah, of mine I would, I would definitely try it I might be surprised hand you a phone I'm just I'm surprised every time I have to type on it how much better Apple's I feel about it Apple's gotta be doing that soon uh, well it's just the whole thing it's just everything about the keyboard experience the default keyboard in, on the Moto X which again I'm assuming is the I haven't installed anything so I'm assuming it's the stock thing I don't think uh, Motorola swapped out its own keyboard in uh, Marshmallow and it's just it's fun so you know I, I always urge people to try different things and not saying hey everybody go buy an Android phone but I love what they did with those two things and well, I and they're converging so much that you know you can kind of peek at Android to see what's coming to iOS and peek right. at iOS to see what's coming to Android because they're all I mean it's not even like you stole this like they stole that like it's all just you know they're both maturing to the point where they're going to have a lot of these same features. Well, what can you put in? At least you the know, ones that's that the work. Thing. I mean, if it works, like go for it. Haptic feedback was a thing, and Apple feels like they've matured it faster and more accurately than other phone makers. But they came to it later than other phone makers did, who were messing around with haptic for a long time. In, in the, to and to the they extent use it for different things, but yeah, eventually, absolutely. I bet they'll bring it to the keyboard. Well, here's the thing that'll be cool looking to the future too is that um, is that micro sensors. Like I'm very interested in this category called BEMS micro electro what are they micro electromechanical blah blah sensors, MEMS. And these are accelerometers, uh, gyroscopes, uh, magnetometers, um, barometers, all the super tiny miniaturized things they can now stick in devices. We have not seen even, I mean, I feel like you think how advanced the phone is now and how much it can do. This is still the beginning of a revolution, right? And that's the part that gets me excited at time when I'm just like, you know, I don't try to love technology for technology's sake because I want to see its application, but I also love when a thing I already have is going to get more sophisticated. It's going to tell me more about my environment. Um, so we're going to see all more of this will be in every phone because it's and other devices like fitness trackers or watches because the miniaturization is still coming. MEMS, watch it's like plastics, the 1960s. Susie, MEMS, <laughs> microelectromechanical sensors, I believe is the abbreviation. Well, let's go back to our regularly scheduled discussions of Apple things. Uh, Good tip, uh, since this is our tips episode, um, using Facebook in Safari. We ran an article recently about the ongoing mystery of Facebook draining iOS battery, even after Facebook believes it solved the problem. Uh, my wife had this the other day. Her phone is just like, it is just like she's watching it drain as nothing is running on screen. 
And we looked up, uh, you know, you go into settings and you look at battery and it shows you, it'll show you the analysis of what's consuming battery. And Facebook was yeah, eating, her, eating her battery up. Yeah, Facebook is awful for battery. And they said back in October that they were, you know, working on it. Oh, sorry, we, we, were, we were as surprised as you. And <laughs> and it was it seemed very disingenuous, at least to me. But, yeah, they say they're working on it. And it's, you know, the, yeah, the Guardian did a little study. It's not super scientific. Uh, it's a little anecdotal. But it's still, you know, it means it's it means something. And my anecdotal evidence backs this up that when I, I deleted Facebook the app from my phone and my phone tends to last a little longer. I was looking at that app a lot. I'm kind of a Facebook junkie and I didn't go Facebook just in Safari as the recommendation is here. Um, I use paper, the other Facebook app that kind of, it's like a little, it's sort of like news. There's different news sections you can add, but the first section is always, you know, your Facebook. So you can see your friend's status updates, it doesn't have a lot of ads. There's like almost no ads. I don't want to call it ad-free because there might be an ad in there somewhere, but it's almost ad-free. And it's just, it's been a better experience. Um, when I had both apps, I wasn't using mm-hmm. paper, but now that I ditched the app, I'm using paper oh, a lot more. You guys are, I know you and, uh, is it? Caitlin, uh, Caitlin, Caitlin got me into guys, it, yeah. yeah. She's it's, the paper uh, evangelist. I'll tell you, you know, I'm not a big Facebook user and I, I got off it at one point and came back uh, more selectively. And a um, little personal note is an uh, uh, old friend from junior high and high school died unexpectedly. He's just a little older than I am um, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I'm connected with some high school friends, but I'd sort of avoided it. Like I'd done one wave of that. And I deleted that account and I came back. It's like, you know, that's in the past. Some people I haven't seen forever. I don't need to know what's going on in their lives every day, even though I like them. I wish them well. And now I know they're doing well. This happened. And because we are all the Facebook generation, like we're all around, you know, right around 45 to 50 is the core group of people who knew this fella. And then there's another generation above, who some of whom are on Facebook because they're savvier, you know, like computer users from way back or they got on because they want to connect with their kids or whatever. And um, it's been, I, I've never had this experience on Facebook where I felt like I wanted to be there before. Yeah. And it's been the most amazing thing where I'm talking to people I haven't talked to in 30, 35 years. We've, there's a you know, communal page to remember him. And um, it's been, I think, very useful. The family has said, his wife and family have said, uh, this has been incredibly helpful to them to deal with this unexpected loss that they have all these people, I mean, hundreds, this guy affected a lot of lives. He introduced my wife and my, my, my children wouldn't exist without him. I mean, this That's is, really cool. this is someone who's touched a lot of lives and it's, uh, it's kind of extraordinary to when you're remembering that person to just see all that splayed out in front of you and like, and, and then people being up to look photos and videos, who's musicians. So, uh, I am like, Oh, Oh, this is what Facebook yeah. is for. Oh, especially in an election year, like Facebook oh, can seem like it's not a fun place to be, and <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be there. But it's so good at those like human connection kind of things, where it's like you want to, you know, be there for somebody, but you can't actually be there for someone. Like I have, you know, friends who have gone through like illnesses, and, yeah, and yeah, like deaths in the family and things like that. And it's it's really nice to be able to like reach out to a bunch of people oh, who man. don't have to like you know drop everything they're doing and take time off of work and like come and sit and have coffee with you, which, you know, we'd all love to do, but we just can't. So it gives you a way to kind of be there for people without, you know, oh, yeah. I to disrupt with your whole life. A friend it's from really junior good. high who's been in Latvia for 20 years. Yeah. So I never would ever see this person again in my life. And she's been now reconnected because of this. She's gotten swept back in. My whole, my old high school drama teacher who I loved, I haven't talked to in a long time. And we exchanges like, oh my God, you know, it just, it's like, so Facebook trash fire on one side, mm-hmm. like the best place in the world of rolling wake and, and yeah. human emotion the other. So. Yeah, none of my friends 
friends that I hang out with here, like most of most of my friends are younger than I am and they don't have kids. So but all my friends from high school, you know, they all have kids and they're all on Facebook. So I can keep track of, you know, like my one friend moved to Singapore to teach English and I can keep up with her. And we like trade recipes we make for our sons and stuff. And it's just it's such like mundane stuff, but done over this huge distance that we wouldn't be able to bridge you know, without these tools. So I appreciate a little joy in those environments from time yeah, to time when you're because nice. because of the trash fire part. I'm lucky I don't have the trash fire. I don't know why. I said I've carefully selected the people I'm connected no, yeah, with. Yeah, it's curating. But, it's not luck. Also, it's like I, what you're gonna let let into your world. Most of my family shares similar political opinions or is not on Facebook. So that's where I'm lucky. My dad refused he got on, he's just like ah, it is a trash fire, he just wanna be on it. And uh but he and I he and I agree on most things, so it'd be fine if he was on. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on from human emotion to um, damaged goods. <laughs> We're all over the place today. <laughs> this, is, this is the weepiest podcast. This Use is the emotional... Facebook and Safari to save your battery, <laughs> comma, connect with loved ones. Exactly. Uh, so Apple, speaking yeah, speaking of things that are damaged, Apple uh, is accepting <laughs> that. Like my heart. Uh, Apple accepts blemished merchandise for trade. And this is an interesting little uh, bit. I don't think I... Uh, I've always gone to Gazelle or you know sold directly if I have a phone that's not perfect or if it's under AppleCare Plus or warranty and I'm trying to sell it, I'll get it repaired if there's something wrong and it fits warranty and uh, then I'll sell it. My good friend Ed Bott, who's a Windows writer of some repute in, uh, and veteranhood, um, he bought my 5S. It broke. I took it back to Apple because it's under warranty. I wanted to sell it and they basically gave me a new you know, refurbished unit and I sold it to him. So he got a great deal. I got the warranty. He got a phone that was essentially new. Uh, I love that. But if you've got a phone with a cracked screen or other problems, so Apple, I, I realize this is a might, right? This isn't a guarantee, but it looks like they're going to be taking, right? Phones that aren't perfect. Yes, it does. Um, they they confirmed after we'll, uh, Caitlin wrote a story that said um, that was based on a uh, nine to five Mac story. And well, then Apple, I'm sorry. Apple okay. did confirm that they are accepting damaged phones. But it's like, you know, just because they accept one, it's it's sort of like damage is, you know, a, a spectrum. Right. So I, I, I guess there's a possibility where if your phone was just really, really like, you know, falling apart and the back was gone. <laughs> I don't know. It's like got burn marks all over it or something. Oh, my God. Susie, they still might terrible, not take it. But... I had a terrible dream last night. I dreamed. I just remembered it. Recovered memory. This is the dream episode now. I uh, <laughs> picked up my phone in the dream and it was completely warped like a potato chip. Oh, man. And then I was like, oh, no. And it was still very hot. So I was pushing it down flat and it was back to normal. And then I let go and it went bloink and it went back into like a potato chip shape. It was terrible. I the first time I really shattered an iPhone, I kept having um, – I was kind of drunk. And then I kept having like drunk dreams that night that my <laughs> iPhone was like made whole. That oh I just picked God. it up and it was fine. Oh. And then the next morning I woke up and like reached for it and it was like, oh, oh. it's still shattered. I'm, oh, I'm awake now. <laughs> the, dream, the dream time comes was, to us. It was pretty bad. Uh, well, I like the idea of being able to take it into a store for trade and not have to like, if you send it off to Gazelle, which is very good. I've had good experiences with them. I know they have a great reputation and there are other outfits like it. They'll give you a fair price, you know, and sometimes you get 50 bucks or whatever, but you get 50 bucks for something that has essentially no other value. If you just want to stay in the Apple ecosystem, being able to take it in, knowing there's no hassle, knowing they're not going to try to nickel and dime you, they'll be like, okay, our policy is you get 50 bucks for this because this, this, and this. You just take it and you walk out of there with credit or whatever you whatever you want. So I like that. Um, hey, we read a story that I thought was uh, – I would agree with entirely about the Apple Watch. Again, speaking of damaged goods, ha, 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 ha. Uh, <laughs> it was a story that was talking about how most Apple Watch apps just aren't very good. I thought this was um, – 
it's not an emperor has no clothes. A lot of people have issues with it. Uh, but this is Michael Simon wrote a really, I thought, well-written piece about the fact that even though there are like 15,000 apps that work on the Apple Watch, that there's nothing that just gives you that that kind of wow experience that need. Now, I know for some people, that's not true. Some of the fitness tracking stuff is, is that for them. Uh, for me, it didn't turn out to be that way. And I sold my watch after WatchOS 2 came out. But, uh, you know, he he's on the side that I'm on, which is nothing on the watch compelled me enough to want to use it instead of a phone. Um, and even, the you know, the OS organization, the fact that you can't, it's like a lot of different things. And so, I don't know, I think it's worth, it's worth a read because uh, I think he paints a good case for why many of us feel lackluster about it, even though it's a great piece of hardware. Yeah, he did a really good job with that one. Um, when I got my Apple Watch, I was using my iPhone 6. And yeah, I kind of came into the same conclusions that he makes is that um, my the watch, my biggest complaint with the watch when I reviewed it was just that everything's so slow, like getting even like having the, the screen wake up when you wake your when you raise your arm, like it, it takes a second. Everything takes a while. And that. when you launch apps and they're like grinding away to try to get the pull the data from your phone, especially if it's an app you haven't like launched on your phone for a while. So there's nothing stored in memory. It's got to like go do everything. That takes a long time. So that's, and that was supposed to get better with watchOS 2. It probably has in some apps, but like, yeah, I'm just not, I don't really use any apps. I have a ton of them installed. I don't use any of them. I use glances. I use notifications. Yeah. It's mostly a notifications engine and, you know, a really nice watch for me. And that's been good. I, I, I use the, the built-in fitness features. I don't have a lot of third-party fitness apps. So that's been useful enough, but it's been useful enough just what I can do with like Siri and notifications. Um, you know, I use it to like pause the, the, the podcast that's playing, you know, or, or skip past commercials. I do that a lot. Um, I use it for timers all the time. So it's like little bitty things. Yeah, but you know, this is where I not use the apps. I, because I got the iPhone 6S, which has the, uh, let's call it, uh, I'll steal from Jason Snell and Mike over at, uh, <laughs> at, at uh, the uh, Relay Network, uh, Ahoy Telephone. So we don't trigger, you know, Siri. Yeah, so. there, there was an Amazon Echo, Amazon Echo ad um, where the uh, uh, was it Alec Baldwin said the name. And a lot of people are saying during the Super Bowl, a lot of people are like my Amazon Echo triggered when he that said that was Alexa. a really funny commercial. That was that was, it was not. It was weird. It had, I mean, it's like, how many celebrities can you pack in there? I um, liked it. But so I, we, we don't say that word. But so I can say Ahoy Telephone and um, my iPhone device does what I want. So I'm always like Ahoy Telephone, set 30 minute timer. Ahoy Telephone, when did uh, Abe Vigoda die? You know, things like that. And right. so I use it like an Echo or like a watch. I don't need I, I, I don't want to look at something. I want it to do it for me. So everything that I was thinking about using my watch for when I got the iPhone 6S became something exactly. I spoke to my phone for. Yes. Yeah. So I, when I got the watch, I was using iPhone 6 and the watch already seemed super slow. Now I have the 6S and the watch is like just left in the dust. Like, I, I mean, the the touch ID on the 6S, like you, if you oh want to just God, see your yeah. lock screen, you have to train yourself to only use the wake button on the side. I use my fingernail. If you hit that, <laughs> <laughs> you're like unlocking it with your elbow because you like, want to see that lock bonk. screen. Yeah. As soon as you touch, you know, a supported finger to that touch ID thing, like boom, it's open. So yeah, like the, my iPhone is just so fast at everything um you know i i don't really have to like hunting for for icons to launch apps i'm using like safari for everything like that spotlight screen a lot of times knows what app i want to launch sometimes the app i want to launch the icons on the home screen because i just plugged in my headphones and it's like oh she's going to listen to a podcast mm -hmm. now 
So my iPhone is getting so good at like predicting what I want to do and making the things I want to do so crazy fast that I just don't really need to go to the watch. Like the watch is going to slow it down. It's I like just, trying to type with oven mitts on. I have like this Zen insight, which is the, I got a, I thought the watch would be good because it meant I didn't have to pull out and look at my phone. What I really want to do is not look at anything. <laughs> right. And so that is what, well, that's what the phone did. Like, so when I have exactly like you, I had the iPhone six, it was slow enough in some ways and unlocking it was a slight pain. The watch was superior. So I'd use the watch. I'd look at it for notifications. I'd look at it for time. I'd use it to set timers. I'd use Siri on it. As soon as I got the success, I didn't need to look at anything. I could just talk. And that to me is a big transformation. So I, I don't mm-hmm. know how that works for other people because other people want information on the wrist without consulting their phone because they need to look at denser information uh, and they don't want it spoken to them. So, you know, I realize all these things, but, um, and again, I never try to argue the Apple watch is bad. It's more like it does not suit any use that I have for it, which is a very different case. Yeah. I, I try to not be that pundit. I don't want to show up in the Macalope. <laughs> Fail. That would be terrible <laughs> if you showed up, you know, if you're writing for Macworld, Macalope, then maybe you've done something wrong. One star. Uh, <laughs> hey, so USB-C is, you know, my, uh, I have the USB-C beat and uh, I write about it, think about it a lot. And uh, what's funny, uh, not exactly funny, I guess, is uh, we just ran a note about uh, from our friends over at PC World, um, ran a story about Benson Leung, who's a Google engineer who has been uh, writing about USB-C cables and helping test them and keeping a a spreadsheet that uh, comprises all of his uh, work on it. And this is not an official thing. It's just something he's doing, which is there's so many bad, cheaply produced cables, and he's trying to find the good ones. So he's leaving bad reviews for bad ones, and he's looking at certification. Uh, And so he got a cable that fried his Chromebook Pixel $1,000 laptop, Plugged it in, and uh, it basically uh, it looks like it destroyed um, the controller, which is pretty amazing. So we have a piece about that. No good deed goes unpunished. I know. It's just, um, you know, luckily it works for Google. Maybe you can get it warranty replaced, uh, that, that Chromebook Pixel. Hope, uh, I hope so. But another reason, you know, so check. Uh, we always uh, suggest with USB-C because it's new. You want certified cables, it's sometimes hard to figure out what they are. So if you search on USB-C and you search on either Benson, his first name, or uh, you know certification, you'll find a spreadsheet, you'll find information. Go on Amazon and read reviews where he leaves them. Uh, we'll be doing more of that as more stuff comes out. But I mean, cables are a pain because there's a thousand cables and which are the 10 good ones. Uh, he's already done that work. Um, we've got a, uh, I wrote a USB-C uh, battery uh, review that uh, will be out sometime soon. I've been very excited about that. Took forever oh, to test. It's um, it's a very interesting area. So in uh, the the preview is that you can buy relatively cheap batteries, substantially less than what it used to cost to get a spare battery when Apple's batteries were uh, laptops had interchangeable batteries. Substantially less adjusted for inflation than those used to cost, where you could actually charge your MacBook, uh, uh, your 12-inch MacBook, like once or twice with a single battery that weighs a pound or less, sometimes half a pound. So that's kind of fun. That's a big, big change uh, over the past. So uh, more Indeed. about that. Uh, and we're going to get to error 55, 53 in a second. Oh, yeah, one more thing, which is I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Dan Morin, who wrote a Oh, yeah, this was so cool. I was about, sick that day, but I was so excited when right. I heard about it. Yeah, and this is a piece we uh, many Mac users would write a similar story, a Mac for all seasons, why the Mac has so much staying power, which was a great story about, like, look, we know the Mac sales are down, quote unquote. But if you look over the history, it's it, the the down the, in the recent quarter, which Apple had various you know stalls and so forth. Um, sales are down slightly, but 
over this entire period, as the PC industry is seeing double-digit drops in PC sales, Apple has seen increases or very, very slight decreases. And you know, as Dan points out, uh, 10 years ago, Apple was selling 3 or 4 million Macs a year. Last year, it sold 20 million Macs. That is a success. And when people talk, like uh, Christopher Mims at The Journal, I wrote a rebuttal to a piece he wrote oh, last yeah. year, um, where he's like, maybe they should kill the Mac because they don't have enough focus. And I want to contrast what Mims wrote with um, with what Mossberg, Walt Mossberg just wrote a piece. Other writers, you've seen uh, uh, Jim Dalrymple and uh, John Gruber have written about this. I wrote about mm-hmm. this a bit last year, too, for Macworld, is that the Apple software quality issue. So the point isn't... Uh, actually, I read a great piece by Michael Hitzig at the LA Times kind of wrapping this up, too, where he had similar things to say. He was pointing out, you know, you get the, the mythical man-year uh, problem is a, a famous book that says, essentially, among other things, the more people you throw at a late project, the later it becomes. And people still don't know that lesson. It takes so long to get people up to speed that if you increase people on a late project, what happens is the project becomes more unmanageable and later. And, uh, you know, his thing is, has Apple reached a point at which... They're so behind in so many things because they have too many fingers and too many pies that they literally can't catch up. And I think there's some truth in it. I think that's when you break big projects like iTunes into smaller ones. So instead (laughs) of having a giant monolithic iTunes, you have five different pieces of specialized software like in iOS. The software can advance more rapidly. There's less uh, dependencies among everything that's going to go on. And and Wasberg specifically called it iTunes. We all hate. I mean, iTunes talk about uh, fire fires in a trash can. Um, we all hate it. So I thought I thought uh, Dan's article was a nice contrast to that too, is that it's not that the Mac is a problem. It's not that Apple is distracted on hardware. It keeps executing on hardware. It's distracted by its inability to manage these large services and software projects. It needs a totally new approach. And we know that Phil Schiller has been put in charge of some of these things you know, just a few months ago. And coincidentally, who should retweet this article about the Mac? But the very seldom tweeting Phil Schiller <laughs> tweets Dan's article, which made him very happy too. Yeah, that was we, a big deal. We don't try to please Mac or Apple, but you know it's nice when you see like you write something that's heartfelt about what this product means and how the how most analysts are getting the issue wrong about what the heart of Apple is and where things are going and people's loyalty to it. And then you have somebody Apple go, "Yep, that's kind of yeah, that's sort of where we're at." Like, oh, all right, that's nice because uh, you know the yeah, iOS is a big deal. It's easy for me to forget that people read the stuff that we put on the web sometimes. Too. I know. Someone will like mention something you're like, "Oh my god, you read that?" <laughs> people are people are listening to us right now. I don't know if it's like right a now. defensive thing I do in my mind where I just imagine <laughs> that I'm just like shoving them like out to sea on icebergs and like they're never going to be seen again, but Oh, I get that. Yeah, that was a too. really yeah. that was a really nice thing that that Phil tweeted Dan's article. We were really excited who, about that. I have friends who know famous people, so occasionally I'll write something that to me seems very modest and I'll find it like, you know, Bill Gip will get William Gibson will retweet it and I'll get some Suddenly, you know, 200 likes on something. And I'm like, well, okay, well, somebody read that. I hope I didn't say something stupid because I was <laughs> just talking. Poor uh, Twitter engineer works in the iOS app after um, the Twitter timeline uh, thing that came oh, out. Oh, I saw that. This the poor, poor guy. guy. Like, I, he's a sap because what he did is he shouldn't <laughs> have said anything. Uh, and he's like, you guys need to trust us more, blah, blah. I'm like, you haven't given us a history trust whatever. Then he said, oh, my God, that tweet got a lot of people listening to it. I didn't think tweeting anyone would listen to what I was saying. This is amazing. People on Twitter are mean. I'm like, dude, do you even tweet? Do you even tweet? You're working on the iOS team. So it was more a revelation about how people inside Twitter, and not to yeah. pick on him in particular. Someone was like, everyone at Twitter should have to use like female names and avatars on Twitter <clears throat> just so they can see like Jesus, what, what it's like. Account. Well, the board of directors, people have gone through and analyzed how many people tweet on the board of directors, how many people in senior they management Twitter. 
Some people do, but not very much. I mean, Mark Andreessen is a great tweeter. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of what he oh, yeah. has he's to say. Oh, yeah. He's great at blocking people. Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he's, just, he's got a lot of interesting things to say mixed in with a lot of things that I think are total asserted nonsense. And, oh. and he has no filter about it. But but he is a very effective um, venture capitalist who has a lot of things to say. He uses Twitter like a, like a tool and a weapon. And he's great at it. And I'm like, why can't people? I mean, not that everyone who works at Twitter should be so distracted by, by actually using it all day. But the fact that but you gotta people, eat your own dog food. I know eat your dog food, and that's part of you know even if it's for business, you gotta be there. Uh, all right, let's get to uh, so let's get to our last issue, which is Error Fifty Three. If you remember the uh, if you ever watch uh, the uh, nineteen eighty four movie, it sounds like, yeah, Hurt. it sounds like a bad movie, right. <laughs> the worst error in the world. Um, so this was fascinating because uh, yes, and, and as you note in our show notes, reminds you of Order Sixty Six. <laughs> That's right. Every the time je- I hear Air 53, I think of Order 66, which was when they killed all the The Jedi. Touch ID is betraying us. It is time to implement mm-hmm. Air 53. Uh, so the issue is that Apple has confirmed is um, this explains a mystery people have been having for some number of months, which is people would take in. So the narrative got spun a couple different ways. So the Guardian, and this is also picked up by Cory Doctorow, who's a noted advocate for uh, privacy rights and freedom for uh, freedom to tinker, as is like Kyle Weens, who's been on the show at uh, iFixit. There's uh, a lot of people who believe, and I'm one of them, that when you buy hardware, you buy things, you should have the right to do things with it, that you possess it, that don't destroy the business model of the company selling it, but that give you fair access to equipment that you own and stuff that you buy. I think this is very reasonable. It was true for the entire history of American manufacturer until just the last few years. So you have people, the first stories that came out that sort of confirmed what was going on, and the first attitude was, if you take your iPhone in for third-party repair or any device with a Touch ID sensor, uh, by repairing it, Apple might choose to brick it because the Touch ID sensor, so uh, I think we've had, we should get Rich Bogle back on and talk about this more, but uh, he's written about this a lot. The uh, Touch ID is paired with a device inside called Secure Enclave, and it protects your fingerprint data and other data associated with Apple Pay and, and some other kinds of personal private data so that it's all one way of vault. So when you train your fingerprint, that data is never sent to Apple. Uh, it's stored in Secure Enclave, and ostensibly it's irreversibly retrievable. So you can only – a new fingerprint can be tested one way against what's stored in it, but no amount of work will get it back out. So Apple has security precautions. If you mess with the insides of your phone and it looks like the Touch ID sensor has been separated from Secure Enclave circuitry, uh, it stops working. That to me seems reasonable. It's an anti-tampering device. Uh, But what happens is the next time you install a system update, this is checked and you get error 53 and the phone is bricked permanently and you have to replace it. Yikes. That seems problematic to me. (laughs) It does. I mean, it's it's – like you said, it's it's a reasonable thing, but it's only reasonable if people know about it ahead of time. That was my problem is I feel like it's almost a disclose like at the level that you could brick your phone by having it repaired is a problem. So uh, the, the, so the early narrative was this is Apple. I shouldn't say it's a narrative, but it was something Cory Doctorow specifically was pushing as a narrative. And he has for a long time because he is a he believes Apple is a very closed system architecture company, which it is. And other people were saying this. The Guardian's article heavily implied it was that this is an attempt for Apple to prevent third-party repairs and to control the device and to make money from repairs and replacements. I would say because this is so poorly implemented as a error message and a response and because Apple hadn't put out a message, there's a page that explains it sort of, uh, but that they had to respond and kind of confirm this. 
I, I don't think that this was a concerted effort to prevent repairs. I think Apple in general does things here and there, like when they switched to pentalobe screw heads, remember that, for uh, disassembling laptops? Those five, that weird five-pedal screw instead of a um, like a Phillips head. Like some of that had to do with um, automatic assembly uh, and some of it had to do with, okay, well, this makes it less likely that people are going to mess with the insides. They'll buy new models. They won't repair. So I think there's a tension there. Uh, but in this case, I feel like it's developers who are like, all right, you know, or security engineers like, well, shoot, if this happens, what should we do? Well, let's check it and then brick the phone because surely people would prefer their devices completely disabled and inaccessible than uh, if it's tampered with that people could gain access. And and from what I've read around, they really could just um, dis disable the secure enclave. They could scramble it. They could do all kinds of other things and make it inaccessible if that's what's going on so that another fingerprint couldn't unlock it or what have you. It could say – hey, we've detected that your Touch ID has been disabled or otherwise tampered, so we are no longer allowing you to use it. If you want to use Touch ID, you're going to have to replace the phone because we do no longer can guarantee the integrity of this device, right? Yeah, that seems reasonable. That seems even better. Yeah, so I think the problem that some people had, so this came out, I think people, people the option. <clears throat> like, do you want to just keep using this phone without Touch ID and the home button is just a dumb home button now and you don't have Apple Pay or... You got to get a new phone. Right. And if you were in a situation where someone had gotten a hold of your phone and tampered with it, and it wasn't a repair, but it was tampering, you would want that message. You don't want error 53. You want somebody was messing with your phone, right? That's what yeah. I'd want to see. So here's where the... the and it, when what, you set up Touch ID, it should say, hey, I, I notice you're using Touch ID. <laughs> 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 would you like to not have a bricked phone? Like, be sure you don't take it in for a third-party repair that blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't know. Like, they just need to educate people well, more about this stuff. Here's the related thing is that some people had did not have their phones repaired and got error 53. So clearly Ooh. in turn. Right. And other people had repairs that did not touch the Touch ID. And, you know, I got responses on Twitter that ranged all over the place, including people saying, well, this is clear. The repairs were done badly, and that's why this happened. I'm like, no, these are completely working finished phones. In some cases, clearly, like repair shops are like, they do not know what they did wrong. Uh, and Apple, in its statement to The Guardian, said, you know, if you're interacting with the digitizer, then conceivably something could go wrong. So you don't actually literally have to mess with the home button. It's anti-tampering technology, which is great. And if it happens when Apple's repairing it, you know, they'll just give you a new phone. Like, it happens to them, too. But they're like, hey, you know, make sure it's backed up. Oh, you know, here's the problem. We uh, bricked your phone, so we have to give you a new one because we messed up the Touch ID. So that's that's a known thing that they can deal with because they have the parts and so forth on hand. But yeah, I don't know. I think – so my take is – I think just like yours is I feel like this should be disclosed at the time you buy the phone. That Like, one of the things you agree with, you say, this phone – may not be able to be repaired by third parties because of entry tampering technology we've put in for your benefit. We believe that the benefit of preventing this technology for Touch ID and Apple Pay so outweighs other things that you may be obliged to bring it to Apple for repairs. And, you know, you acknowledge this by checking this box, right? And I would just, I mean, to the extent that you can't rely on a third-party repair because it might do this and brick your phone as opposed to just disabling Touch ID... That seems like a big deal to me. I feel like uh, it's a it's a bad disclosure, and um, you know the FTC investigates things like this if they think it's uh, deceptive or misleading a consumer practice. Um, and there is no law against third party repairs, and there are sometimes laws that are adjusted to and um, traditional rulings that allow third party repairs of devices uh, or even modification of software in some cases. So 
I don't know. I don't think Apple handled this as well as they should have, but I also think it kind of bubbled out of engineering as opposed to a well-thought-out plan because Air 53 is not a well-thought-out plan. No. <laughs> yeah. So, well, two things. 9 to 5 Mac just posted. Did it, did it, breaking oh. news. Um, Apple open, open. is facing a class action lawsuit. There no is surprise. a Seattle-based law firm that is looking for, looking for uh, you know, uh, plaintiffs. So if you've been affected by Air 53... Get in touch. It may be tricky. New York Times ran a series recently about how uh, arbitration clauses and a lot of what we buy and a lot of services we have today, and the Supreme Court has affirmed these arbitration clauses. They completely deactivate class action potential. You cannot. So we'll see. They may not be able to get certified as a class action if Apple is engaged in these arbitration clauses. So that's a, a related issue about getting relief. It's, it used to be a tool both for abuse and also for getting um, effective uh, a resolution, and now it may not be available. Uh-huh. Well, then the other thing is we've been having issues with trying to find um, third-party repairs that are not for iPhones because those seem a lot easier to repair. But um, Caitlin broke her Apple Watch, and uh, we were trying to find, you know, obviously you can get it repaired by Apple, but the, I don't think they really – I think they just give you a new one um, and then repair it on their own time. I don't know if you drop it off and then pick up the same one later. I kind of doubt it. So we were looking for maybe there was someone, you know, who could repair it and we could like do a little video, like here's what it looks like when they repair your Apple Watch. And she lives in New York, which is, you know, the the epicenter of getting watches repaired <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I feel confident in saying that. Actually, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But anyway, like if- No, it's if they, true. You could probably walk down the street and get your iPhone digitized or replaced. So. I feel like if they don't do it in Queens, like it's not done. So she found a guy in Queens who was like, yeah, come on out and give me a deposit and I'll order parts from China. And he was like all about repairing her Apple Watch. And it's been like two months and he has not been able to do it he's like oh I, I got a screen and i repaired someone else's apple watch and it didn't work but maybe yours is, isn't as broken as that one is and like let's give it a try it turns out that like there's really no third-party apple watch repair right now so oh, and a it. lot of times like it's probably yeah and we were looking at it and it was going to be you know like 20 bucks cheaper than having apple repair so we were just going to do it like for the story yeah but it turns out yeah it's Apple is the best at this, and they really know what they're doing. So if I was going to have an Apple thing repaired, I mean, it's easy for me to say because I live in a town with like five Apple stores, and some people don't. Like if you're in Montana or something, you know, you might not have a lot of options. Well, it's but, also if you want to get the battery repaired, if you've got a broken screen, you're out of warranty, you didn't buy Apple Care Plus. Like there's all these places in which it's like, you know, I'd love to take my Apple phone in reliably and get it repaired. Now, would I do that? Probably not because I know it's so there's hard a chance. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I get Apple Care Plus partly to avoid this. And I know people tell me, you know, insurance is a bad deal. I feel like it's been a good deal for me because every Apple phone I've needed, I've bought has needed a repair under either regular warranty, but often in the second year. Uh, so I've made out like a bandit is my feeling versus having to pay out of pocket for, um, for non-warranty repair. So I haven't done it yet. My wife has a five, um, iPhone five, uh, uh, regular and, uh, she is, uh, the, the volume down button doesn't work. So she's using command center to, or control center to uh, lower volume when she needs to. But you know, if the volume goes up, if she's riding along and it bumps against her, it's like, ah, you know, then she's got to pull the phone out and unlock it, swipe up. And we're like, oh, should we get it repaired? We're like, ah, you know, it's like 80, 90 bucks for that repair. We should just wait and get you a new iPhone soon, like if the uh, 5OC comes out. But I, I don't like third-party repair. I, I think everything should be repairable other than by the manufacturer. But I don't think the manufacturer is obliged to make parts available. But at the same time, it's like if there's actually something that 
can damage the phone or device or watch. I think the manufacturer needs to make it clear both to buyers and just in general, like, look, we are not trying to be jerks mm-hmm. about it. You know, you can t- you can call us jerks if you want. You can say this makes the phone unrepairable. But if you do this, this, and this. Now, of course, Apple doesn't want to say it. If it's anti-tampering technology, they don't want to provide details. And now they have, but they have to provide details because it's happened. You know, you can't. Yeah. It's like they could. And, and in fact, I'm sure in places they have said, if this becomes unpaired, we're not going to tell you exactly what causes unpairing. Uh, but now we know a wide variety of conditions does cause the sensor and the secure enclave to become unpaired. So, uh, well, let's hope they uh, let's hope they get this act together because I feel it like it seems like if it's a small number of devices, like Apple could just take care of it. I think it's it in the away. thousands, though. From the reports, you indicate that there's thousands Ooh. of people on forums that have reported this with their phones. In some cases, just through normal use. And I think in the cases when it was normal use, they'll go in with Air 53, and the employee will be like, oh. Well, you can't recover the data, but here's a you know refurbished replacement. And I think I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember if I've seen anybody discuss this out of warranty. But we're but uh, a lot of the devices would be in warranty that had Touch ID just by volume. So um, or under Apple Care Plus, if people had that. So I know I've uh, I had a problem. Actually, yeah, I think I it was six and going forward because the five had Touch ID, but it oh, doesn't have, have Apple this. Pay. So I don't think the secure element thing is quite as well. It had enclave, uh, secure enclave though, but I don't know if it had. I don't think it had the unpairing problem because nobody reported a five S with this. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, it's only it sounds been six. like from the reports that it was six and yeah. So and mostly under warranty. So if it happens, you call Apple Air Fifty Three. They're like, oh, Air Fifty Three. You know, there's an internal hardware problem. This is not your fault. Send it in. If that's what they're doing. They're sort of taking care of it, although people lose all their unsynced data in that case. The data is totally unretrievable. It's an interesting battle between security and integrity and uh, consumer friendliness. So we'll see how that addresses. Well, I think we've now we've uh, closed the worst room in the world, the worst error in the world. And um, <laughs> we'll, we'll continue to uh, watch this evolving situation. No younglings were slayed in That's the making right. of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. What up, my young youngs? Uh, so, uh, Susie, I think this closes another week of the Macworld Podcast. Delightful to talk to you, and I hope you're actually feeling better by next week. Always a pleasure. I hope so, too. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, uh, this has been uh, Glenn Fleischman, at a senior contributor to Macworld. This has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 494 for February 10th, 2016. You can write us, you know, write to podcast at macworld.com. You can find us at on Twitter. I'm Glenn F. with two N's. Susie is SFSUZ, S-F-S-O-O-Z, like Zed. And you can go to Macworld.com, find these articles, the show notes, and leave comments on the podcast post. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we'll be back next week.